You are listening to audio from Hope Church Ipswich. For more information about our church, please visit www.hopechurchipswich.net. If we haven't met before, my name is Tom and I lead a team of elders or pastors here at Hope Church. And this morning we're going to be starting a new series in the book of Ruth. So if you have a Bible with you, you might like to turn there to Ruth chapter 1. It's the eighth book of the Bible, so it's quite near the beginning. And just before the book of 1 Samuel, which we went through as a church earlier this year, uh, and a bit of last year as well. This is a remarkable story. I don't know if you're familiar with it. Um, It's a remarkable story. It's a story of grief, a story of sacrificial love in friendship, a story of sacrificial love in marriage. Uh, There's much we can learn from this story. Through this story, we, we learn of God's sovereign hand, how he's He's in control of all things. He's able to work through things that are even tragic. Uh, He's able to show his wisdom and kindness uh, in difficult situations and hard circumstances. What I find most remarkable about this story is that Ruth, who's the main character in this story, she goes on to be the great-grandmother of King David, who, if you know anything about the Bible, he was the the, the most important king uh, of the Old Testament. And uh, He himself, an ancestor of the greatest king, Jesus. And this family are in a a very dire situation, as we're going to see today. And yet Jesus himself is not ashamed to be born into a family tree that has, you know, far from perfect people and far from perfect situations. He is... Uh, he's our perfect saviour because he can perfectly uh, empathise with us because he himself is born into uh, an imperfect bloodline except he is the perfect one. And uh, we see here that God is able to bring about good even from the most desperate of situations. He's able to work through them. You might be in a very uh, desperate state right now. You might feel like my life is a bit of a mess. I don't really know what to do. I don't know where to turn. You might think my family is a bit of a mess. You might think... I don't know, can God bring anything good out of this? Well, this story is an encouragement to you. The story of Ruth is an encouragement to you that God is able to bring about much good, even from a very messy situation, for your good, but for his glory. He's able to do it. This is what we're going to see in the coming weeks, that God is at work. He's not surprised by anything. Nothing stops his ultimate plans. He's not, uh, nothing makes him worried because he's sovereign. He's in control. There's no situation that's too messy for him to redeem. There's no situation, there's no one too far gone for him to transform with his mighty hand. So let's read the first few verses. We're going to work through this chapter together this morning. I'm going to read the first five verses. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Marlon and Chilion. They were Epaphrodites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about ten years. And both Marlon and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. So we've got a situation here where uh, there's a famine in the land of Judah and Elimelech and his family living in Bethlehem, which literally means house of bread. They've run out of bread and so they go on the lookout for a land which has some food. Now, whilst that might seem a logical thing to do, it's also a very, very questionable decision from Elimelech because he's literally uprooting his family from God's community, God's people in God's place 
and taking them into a place which is the enemy of God's people in Moab. He's taking them out of uh, the place where God had promised to bless and provide for and, put, and, and taking them to Moab, which was a place which was, they didn't worship the God of Israel and they were not, uh, they, yeah, they had completely different ways. It was an enemy, as I say, of God's people. Husbands here, dads here, we are supposed to lead our families to be a part of God's community. That's just a very short point I want to make here. That doesn't mean mums don't also, but dads, we are to take our family and lead them into the community of God. I read the other day this uh, quote, which said, Dads, when you wake up on Sunday mornings excited to take your kids to church, you preach a sermon they will never forget. That we are actually to be the ones who, who lead our family into God's community, not away from God's community, as Elimelech had. Elimelech is making a, a bad decision here. Under pressure, we can understand it, but he's actually leading his family to a place where they've got no godly community, nowhere where his uh, wife can have uh, uh, fellow Jewish friends, nowhere where his family can... Our families need to have community. We, they need to have church community. So Elimelech's taken his family out of the land of Judah and into Moab, and tragically, after some time, Elimelech dies, and he's got no brothers who would have been the ones responsible for caring for Naomi. But it seems like it's going to be okay because his boys grow up and they take uh, Moabite wives, but then tragically they die as well. This is a really, really sorry state that this family is in. Not only was Elimelech dead before his time, but so were his sons. This is really, really tragic. And I want to just for a moment touch on death and grief here because this passage does, it really does, in quite some depth. We regret it, don't we, when someone dies before their time. We, we, we talk about, uh, you know, they've, cut, they've died too soon, they were taken too soon. We have a phrase uh, in Britain that so-and-so had a good innings, a kind of good critic, cricketing phrase there. They had a good innings to sort of uh, suggest they had a good amount of years. Well, the Bible had that expectation as well. Abraham died when he was full of years, it says in the scriptures. He was full of years. And we really lament it, don't we, and regret it when someone dies before their time. We cannot understand it. We can't get our heads around it. We, we, we feel it's just so confusing. And for some, it actually leads to questioning the existence of God. To say, well, how can there be a God when, when someone might die before their time? How can God allow that? But what I want to suggest this morning is that actually our shock at death, our shock even at uh, death, which is premature, is a sign that God does exist. It's a sign that God does exist. If you're here this morning, and, and I know this is the case for many of you, and you're sort of weighing up uh, faith and what's it all about and is God real and so on. You've got to consider this. Death is coming to everyone. Benjamin Franklin said the only two things we can guarantee in this life are death and taxes. That's the only things we can guarantee. Death is coming to everyone. So why are we surprised when it comes about? Why are we so cut to the core when it happens? We're absolutely right to be cut to the core when it happens. We're absolutely right to be devastated. But my question is this. Why are we surprised at death? It's because death is an unwelcome guest at the party. It's not natural. It's tragic. We don't just take it to be matter of fact, something that's just coming to all of us. No, we consider this an unwelcome guest at the party of life. We were never meant to die. This is a sign that we were designed to live forever. It's a sign that we were destined to live forever. We can consider this actually a sign of God's existence. You may want to believe that it's all an accident, you may want to believe that it's all an accident. This is, this is all an incredible fluke. 
and that all of these complex life forms that you see around you, you look to the person next to you, they're a complex life form, very, very complex. You may want to believe that they have just appeared as a result of billions of years of evolution from nothing, so nothing has created all of this complex life form that you see around you. You may want to believe that, but if that were the case, then death would surely be to us a matter of fact. It would surely be much more matter of fact than it is to us. The death of a friend or a loved one, if, if life really were meaningless, if, if there really were no design and it was all an accident, then it would simply be a case of there's one less person to compete with the resources we have. I'm not suggesting that that is how anyone considers death. But if life really were meaningless, if you really believed it or were consistent with that worldview, then it really would be a case of someone less to compete with for resources as we simply look about passing on our genes. No matter how many people want to believe that life is meaningless, no one can live that way. No one can really live that way. It's impossible to live consistently with a framework that says that life has no meaning and that death is just the end. It's impossible to live that way. It's impossible to live consistently with that framework. You may want to believe that it's all an accident and that there's no ultimate meaning, there's no significance, but you don't live as if that's true. If you did live as if that was true, you would be miserable. You would be utterly miserable. If you live happily, it's only because you are not consistent with your worldview. It's only because you're not consistent with what you claim to be true. You live as if it were meaningful. You live as if it were uh, designed. You live as if, it, if what you do really does matter. You live as if what you really do really does have eternal consequences. So when it comes to making sense of death, the Christian sees death as not natural. It's not meant to be. We were meant to live forever. But what the Bible teaches us is that human death came into the world because of mankind's rebellion against God, our turning away from his ways, us believing that our ways were ultimately better than his ways. That is why death has come into the world, because we've rejected the source of life. We've turned away from the source of life. And so death is a reality for all of us. And it's shocking for us. It's painful for us. It's no different for Naomi. In fact, as we're going to see for her, it was very, very painful indeed. But it was painful for Naomi for a couple of reasons. Firstly, there was going to be no one that would continue the family line. In an, in an era where that was so important that the man's name would continue, and maybe some of you are from cultures where that is very, very important, and you'll understand what this means, that there would be no one to continue the family line. There'd be no one who could actually bring on the name of Elimelech into the next generation. That was one thing that would have brought shame to Naomi. But the second thing is that for her and her daughters-in-law, they now had no one to provide for them uh, protection and financial provision. Not being sexist there, that's just the way it was. That's the way it was where uh, they relied on their husbands to provide for them. So beyond the grief, there was very, very real concern as well. This is a very grave situation for them. So what does it produce in Naomi? Let's read on. Verse 6. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you, as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. 
And they said to her, no, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. And then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. We see here that Naomi grieves. She sounds quite bitter and perhaps even disrespectful towards God. And we might think, in our, maybe some of our Western mindset, we might think we want to kind of hush her a little bit. Just say, hey, calm down a little bit here. You're being disrespectful to God. But actually, she has learned to grieve. She knows something of what it is to grieve. We might, if we were with her, we might try and quiet her down a little bit. She's, cry, she's weeping loudly. We might try and calm her down or say, oh, maybe we might try and rationalize it. Maybe this has happened because God is going to do this through it. Or, you know, have you tried doing this because that will help you to forget the pain. That will help you to distract yourself. We might try and kind of calm her down a little bit. But the Bible gives multiple examples of this sort of honest reflection and heartache that's brought to the surface. Multiple examples. Lament is a spiritual activity. It's a spiritual activity. It's bringing disappointment, pain, and heartache to the one who is in control. That's what it is. That's what lament is. It's bringing disappointment, pain, and heartache to the one in control. We must learn to do this. We must learn to bring our disappointment and pain to the one who's in control. Paul Miller, he writes this, For a relationship to work, the real you must meet the real God. Even telling God, I'm not sure you can fix this, is a form of faith because you are going to God and you're not stewing in your frustration. So even if you're thinking, I don't, I'm not sure I can really speak to God in the words that I think he wants me to speak to him with, that's even, a thing, that's even going to God in faith because you're not stewing in your frustration. You're not sitting there uh, just stewing in anger and sadness. So many people don't go to God because they feel the unbelief in their heart. I can relate to this. And they shut down because they know it isn't right. That's like a toddler, though, who never takes a step because they're fearful of falling over. We must come to God like a little child. Even if we sense that what we're bringing is immature, we bring it to God. We bring it to God. That's what we're to do. And in the West, we might have lost this practice of lament. We might have lost something of it. But in contrast, the ancient Hebrews, they were in God's face constantly. About the third of the Psalms, so if you don't know the Bible... If you tend to open the Bible up, you, you not, almost always end up in the Psalms because it's a huge book. A third of those Psalms, songs and poems written to God, a third of them are Psalms of lament, where the, where the, author are, the authors are crying out to God in pain. A third of them. I'll read a few examples. Psalm 10, verse 1. Why, Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Psalm 13, verse 1. How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? Psalm 22, verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You might recognize that. That's what Jesus cried out on the cross. Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? We need to be like the psalmists and actually allow our prayers to be characterized by honesty 
and not stoicism, not kind of gritting my teeth. I mustn't show God any emotion. I mustn't show that I'm disappointed in what's happened here. I mustn't show him that I'm angry. I've got to kind of put on a smile here and pretend that everything's okay or just repeat kind of mantras that I am okay. No, let's be more like the psalmist here. Pour out our hearts to God. Be honest before God. We see that again and again encouraged in the Psalms. Pour your hearts out to God. Pour your hearts out to him. Don't pretend that anger is not in there or disappointment is not in there. He knows it already. He knows what's going on within. Why would we even begin to try and hide it? Why would we try and keep it all in? Grieving is appropriate. It's healthy. Jesus did it in John chapter 11. I don't quite get my head around this because I think he well knew that he was going to bring his friend back to life. But he grieved at the loss of his friend Lazarus. He, Lazarus, he cried. He wept aloud. Jesus, Jesus wept. We can weep. Jesus poured out his heart to God. We can pour out our hearts to God. Naomi grieves, and in her grief, though, she perhaps forgets that she does indeed have a hope in this life. She has a relative of her late husband who, later on in this book, would actually come to rescue the family. I think she, in her grief, she allows that to cloud her memory that there is actually some hope. She doesn't cease to trust God. She doesn't cease to believe that God exists. She even prays for her daughters-in-law. She's still trusting that God's sovereign and he's in control. But in her grief, she forgets that there is a hope. It's okay to grieve. And not just talking about death here. I'm talking about significant loss. I'm talking about significant change that you hadn't planned. It's okay to grieve. It's good to grieve. But we must remember as Christians that we have a hope. We must, uh, at some point, move from uh, you know, our grief and sadness to, to joy. Our sorrow must turn to joy. Our mourning must turn to dancing. Because we have a hope that is far, far greater than the hope that Naomi had. We see, we see hints that in the Old Testament they had an understanding of the afterlife. We, King David loses a child. He, his baby dies. And he says, I know I will see him again someday. So they, they, there's, there's hints, there's glimpses of an understanding of an existence after death. But we have a far, far greater hope than Naomi had. We have a far, far greater hope than King David had. We have a sure and certain hope because Jesus has defeated death. Because Jesus, as he rose from the grave, he defeated death. So that means death has lost its sting. It means that death is not the end for those who've placed their hope in Jesus. It means death is not the end. We have a sure and certain hope. So this kind of ancient practice that they had in these times of prolonged, uh, maybe sometimes weeks, months-long lament, we don't need this because we have a Savior who has made a way for us. It's good to, uh, it's good, as I've said, I think I've made it very clear, it's good to lament and grieve. But ultimately we have a hope that we must come back to. Death has lost its sting for us. We won't just exist beyond the grave, but we will have true life. We will have life that we haven't even, uh, we'll have it in greater abundance than the life we know now. We've only just tasted of what we will have because we're going to be with the one who is life. We're going to be with Jesus who is life. And so it's not that we're just going to exist, we're going to get to be with Jesus. That's going to be far greater than anything we've experienced. Just think for a moment of the greatest thing that you have experienced in this life. It might be 
I don't know, for some of you, it might be a, an amazing meal. It might be romance. It might be the love of a family member. It might be a really fulfilling job. Whatever it might be, whatever it is that you've experienced that you think that is the greatest thing I've ever experienced in my life, it is nothing in comparison to being with Jesus for eternity. It doesn't even begin to compare. That is our hope. And it's a sure and certain hope if we've placed our faith in Jesus. If we've made him, he's, he's our only hope. If we've made him our only hope, then that's guaranteed for us. That's guaranteed for us. Now, I haven't wanted to major on death and grief today, but this is in here. It's in here. The Bible doesn't whitewash it and say these things don't, don't happen. You know, you never have an unexpected death. You never have a tragedy. No, the Bible's full of tragedy, but it's full of pointing people to God that he is in control, even in the darkest times. And this morning, I want to appeal to you to come forward for prayer. If you're going through a dark time, we had a number of people just meeting with God at the end of the first service, just as we laid hands on their shoulder and prayed with them, and some people just pouring out their heart, really. God is able to, to bring you through, and not just that you survive, but that you thrive even in the difficulties. Let's read on the uh, end of this passage, shall we? So Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your peoples shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried." May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death departs me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. We've seen here uh, Ruth really, we've seen her for the first time now. And she is an amazing woman. She is an amazing woman. She's a beautiful woman. She, this is true beauty. This is amazing kindness for a few reasons. Firstly, it meant that Ruth would leave her own family and land. I want you just to imagine that for a moment. To leave, some of you have literally done this. But in pursuit of another person, because you're committed to them, you would leave your own country and land, all of the culture, the language, the customs, the geography, all of it, and now you're going to something completely unfamiliar. She is leaving behind everything that's familiar to her. Secondly, it means as far as she knows, a life of widowhood and childlessness awaits because Naomi has seemingly forgotten and she, has, she said, I've got no other relatives that you can marry. And that was the custom back then. She's got no other relatives as far as she's aware. And so she's basically saying, I'm coming with you and I'm going to give myself to a life of widowhood and childlessness. Thirdly, it was a commitment even more radical than marriage. Where you die, I will die and there be buried. In other words, she's never going to return home. Even when Naomi dies, she's never going to return home to Moab. 
we have an incredible model here of loving kindness. In this sacrificial love, we see a glimpse, a foreshadowing of the loving kindness of God towards us in Jesus. That is what we're seeing here in Ruth. And her love is flourishing in a time of suffering. You know, that happens sometimes when we see someone suffering and we're moved uh, with compassion towards them. That's when love can really flourish because we're cause, it causes us to forget about ourselves for a minute and to focus on the other person. In a self-obsessed age, how we need to forget about ourselves and love others like this. How we need that for our own good and for the good of others. Ruth shows herself to be a self-sacrificing, loyal friend. Before, even before this amazing uh, statement of where you go, I will go, and where you die, I will die, and so on. Naomi has already praised the kindness of Ruth. She's obviously a kind woman. In verse 8, she, she says, May the Lord deal kindly with you. And when we read the word kindly here, Naomi has used a word here in the Hebrew language, which is chesed, chesed, which means steadfast, loving kindness. And it's used again in chapter 2 and chapter 3. And it's used again and again in the scriptures as a description of God. It's a completely different love to the transactional love that's prevalent in our culture. If it's something in it for me, then I'll I'll go for it. This is a committed, sacrificial, one-way love. Love without an exit strategy. It's a stubborn love. And this is the love that is at the heart of Christianity. It's God's love towards us. As I say, in, in various places in the scripture, God is described as having steadfast love. In Psalm 107, whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let him consider the steadfast love of the Lord. Exodus 34, when uh, God is introducing himself and uh, bringing this, the stone tablets with the Ten Commandments on, he talks of himself as the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Here we see chesed again, steadfast love. And in his book, A Loving Life, Paul Miller says this, chesed, doesn't, chesed love doesn't pretend everything is rosy. In fact, because it knows things aren't rosy, it sets its will to love regardless of the response of the one loved. It sets its will to love regardless of the response of the one loved. This is a totally different, this is totally different to uh, feelings-based commitment. Our culture is really in tune with its feelings, isn't it? We're in kind of this true, be true to yourself kind of era, which basically means act on your feelings. Do it if you feel like it. But the opposite is true here for Ruth. She's committing to maintaining her promise through thick and thin. And there would have been some thin. She's got to walk for a long time with her mother-in-law in the hot, sticky desert. She's got to, she's, she's, that's going to get annoying, right, after a while. They're going to rub each other up the wrong way. That's one thing. And then she's got to get used to a new culture and make new friends. And she's going to think to herself, why did I do this? I could have gone... I could have gone back to my homeland with my, my, sis, with my sister-in-law Orpah and we could have got new husbands and things could have been rosy. But no, she's committing to maintaining her promise through thick and thin. She's committing to it, even when it doesn't feel very good. This has implications, doesn't it, to the things that we've committed ourselves to. Our society would echo the 60s slogan of, if it feels good, do it. Our culture celebrates being true to yourself. And that basically means acting on our feelings. That's why many people are reluctant to get married because they don't want to commit because they're thinking, well, what if I kind of don't feel like it down the line? Or it would say, if you're not in love with your spouse anymore, then you're free to leave. 
happens so often. This is an often repeated formula. It's the logic behind many broken covenants. It equates love with feeling happy. And the result is this. We are dominated by the tyranny of our ever-changing feelings. We don't endure. To live life by our feelings is a really foolish thing to do because our feelings change all of the time. To base our commitments on whether or not we feel like it, it really is foolish. And I'm not just talking here about marriage. We could, we could talk about many commitments that we make. If it's not working for me anymore, well, I don't really feel like it anymore. That can be our response. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying here that there's never a reason to divorce and break a covenant. There are. And, and Jesus says quite clearly that there are. But so many people would say, I'm not in love anymore, and therefore I want out of this marriage. Well, they forget that they've made a commitment to, to love through thick and thin even when it doesn't feel very good, even when it's hard. So let's consider Ruth's example here. There is, this is committed love. This isn't feelings-based love. It's not, I'll commit as long as it's a good arrangement for me. It's steadfast, loving kindness. It's godly. It's really godly. By that, I mean it literally reflects God. She is literally reflecting God's loving kindness towards us. She commits to staying with Naomi in spite of an apparently hopeless future. Naomi painted the future black, and Ruth took her hand and walked into it with her. It really couldn't... Uh, Naomi wasn't selling this deal very well, was she? She wasn't saying, well, you know, it'll be good, you know. No, she's selling it as bad as it really is. And Ruth walked into it with her. This is outrageously countercultural, And yet this is the love that Jesus showed for us at the cross. This is what he demonstrated to us at the cross. He demonstrated the steadfast love of God for the world. He provided the means for individual sinners like you and I to be made clean, to be forgiven, and to be brought into a family where hesed, this, kind of, this, this committed love, should characterize our relationships. It should characterize our relationships, that we would be committed to others, even if there's nothing in it for us, that we would be committed to the good of others, even if we can't see where the benefit is for us. This is what God has for us. Naomi had become bitter though. She had considered herself harshly treated by God. She had good reason, I think, to feel that way. Her husband had died young, her sons had died young, but this is what she got wrong. Right in front of her very eyes, God was showing her loving kindness in providing Ruth for her. Right in front of her very eyes. And so often that happens for us, doesn't it? We complain, we feel like God has treated us harshly, Maybe we think God's forgotten about me. And right in front of our very eyes, God is showing us his loving kindness in his provision to us. He's showing us his loving kindness in the provision of loved ones, of our church community. He's showing us his loving kindness in all kinds of ways. He's ultimately shown his loving kindness to us in this, in Jesus Christ laying down his life for us. And we're going to celebrate in just a moment and just rejoice afresh in that mercy that he's shown us. And the worship team are going to lead us in just a moment. God is committed to us. Do you know that? Do you know that he's committed to you? He's more committed to you even than Ruth was to Naomi. God is committed to you. The Bible says that neither death nor life nor any power in heaven and on earth nor angels, nor demons, nothing, nothing can separate you from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. He is so committed to you. And he's committed to us through thick and thin. And with us, if you're anything like me, there's a lot of thin, isn't there? 
There's a lot of sin that God has to stick with us through. He's committed to us. And he's always doing us good. And even though we might uh, rightly lament sometimes when things have gone hard, they've become hard for us, they've become tragic for us, we rightly lament, but we ultimately declare that, God, you are good and you're never going to let me down. We sing that sometimes. And I think to myself, some mornings I sing it and I think, why am I singing this? Because you've let me down in this, God. No, he never lets us down. It says in Romans 8, in that same passage, which talks about the love of God and us not being able to be separated from his love, it says that for those who love God and who are called according to his purpose, he is working together all things for our good. That means even the difficult things. And so we really can sing out with gusto, you are never going to let me down. Because even though we might come across circumstances that we think, God, why is this happening? Ultimately, he's committed to our good. He really is. We, we only need to look as far as the cross, which was an apparently tragic situation, and we think Jesus is in defeat here, and we think, God, you've let Jesus down. And then three days later, we know he rose, he rose his son from the grave, victorious, and gave him the name that is above every name, that one day every knee will bow before him, every tongue will confess that he is Lord to the glory of God. God is working even in tragedy, even in difficulty. He's done it with his son. He does it with his sons and daughters now. He's committed to our good, amen? He's committed to our good. Should we stand together? I'd love for us to pray. And we're going to sing. The band are going to lead us. But there are some people here who need to do business with God. It might be that you need to pour out your heart. Maybe you've been kind of stoic and thinking, I've got to keep things in and I've got to, uh, I've got to pretend everything's okay. This morning... You may want to pour your heart out to God, and we'd love to help you in that. You can do it where you are, but we'd love to help you in it if it's coming to the prayer area, which is to my right in a little while. We'd love to stand with you. You might want to just pour out your heart to God. It's okay. He can take it. He's got, he's got broad shoulders. He can take it. It might be that you want to leave bitterness behind. Maybe for years you've been carrying bitterness in your heart because of something that's happened to you. A couple of years ago, a friend of mine in the church here he came up to me one Sunday after having been prayed for, and he said, this was his words, he said, I've just left 35 years of crap behind, of bitterness, of all kinds of pain. I've just left it behind. It was as simple as that for him. For some, it might be a bit more of a thing to work through, but he just left it behind. I'm not going to hold on to this anymore. I'm not going to allow this bitterness to, uh, to, to drag me down. I'm going to trust that God is good, and he is doing me good, even when I don't acknowledge it. And I'd love to pray with you. We'd love to pray with you. There'll be a number of people ready to pray with you if that's your situation today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are committed to doing us good. Thank you, Father, that we have a hope that goes beyond the grave. We have a hope that is sure and certain. That as we, we place our hope solely in you, as we come to realize you are our only hope, Lord, that is, that's all it requires. It's faith in you, our only hope. We trust in you. We trust in you, Lord Jesus, for eternal life. We trust in you for this life. We trust in you for your continual work in our lives to do us good and to make us more like Jesus. Lord, we trust in you. Maybe you'd like to just say that where you are around the room. I trust in you. Whatever's going on around me, you might be going through something as tragic as Naomi. Why don't you say, God, I trust in you. 
You are in control. Thank you for your loving kindness shown to us, Father. Thank you for your committed love. Thank you, you're so committed to us. You're so good, Lord. We don't deserve it. We rejoice in it now. We pray that as we rejoice in your love, that we would be channels of your chesed, your steadfast love, your steadfast loving kindness to others. Let us be channels of that in our areas of life. We want to be those that receive of your love, of your mercy, and then simply we want to be channels of your love and mercy wherever we go. Come and deal with us, I pray. Come and deal tenderly with us, mercifully with us. Come and change us, I pray, in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to audio from Hope Church Ipswich. Please feel free to make a copy of this content, but please do not edit the content in any way.